Hey everyone, welcome back to But Why the Podcast, and today we are talking about Space Nine. As always, I'm your host Kate, and I'm here with Adrian. Hey, how's it going? Matt is currently indisposed and doing convention stuff, but we have a super special guest today, Alexander Brzee. Hello. Professional game designer from World of Warcraft, League of Legends, and most recently, Ori and the Will of the Wisps. He now runs his own game design educational site called GameDesignSkill.com, and... He was indoctrinated in the ways of Star Trek with TNG by his father at age four. How are you guys doing tonight? So good and so happy to have you on. (laughs) Oh, it's fun to be here. Um, I will say uh, for fans of the show who have been listening to this for a long time, we've done quite a few Star Trek episodes, but this is Adrian's favorite of all of the Treks. And so I'm going to hand this episode off to him. So he can take us through his love of the nine. Yeah, this is um, we've done a few a few episodes. I think like I made like our second episode of the podcast or something like that was Star Trek. You can't listen to that anymore, but you can listen to like our Captain's episode or our Picard episode um, and things like that. And I've kind of talked about Deep Space Nine in some of those episodes, but this is like the first time that we kind of get to kind of delve deep into what Deep Space Nine is and what's different about it and why I love it so much and why Captain Cisco is the best captain and if you don't think so, I'll send you my address. We can come talk about it in my garage. Um, <laughs> not really, but it's really good. Um, and I really, really do love it. I'm in my, I don't know, fourth or fifth rewatch now. It's been a couple of years, but with all of the Star Trek Day stuff coming up and um, death of some of the actors more recently, I, I just needed to go back and kind of rewatch it again. And, you know, what better time than the present to talk about Deep Space Nine? Because I think a lot of the things that it talks about are still relevant today sadly even though it's been years since the show's come out um but we'll we'll go with it so for people who don't know um how familiar are you with deep space nine and we'll start with kate so not hella familiar but i did use a few episodes to teach a class um so I, I taught a class in undergrad on of, uh, religion and science fiction and television, and I coupled, uh, so Star Trek shows two sides of religion, the, an- the absence of religion and then religion um, as it's taken on uh, by, uh, pra- practiced, um, and Deep Space Nine goes into a lot of religion, and so I, I, I looked at the Thorns, um, and we kind of dissected. Um, both uh, religion in teaching facilities and that and I paired that up with who watches the watchers which is favorite episodes of the next generation um so if you listen to this episode you know that I'm a huge next generation fan and a Picard girl uh but uh during uh during our uh Picard episode actually no after our Picard episode uh, Adrian had looked at a list that they had done for like the best episodes to watch during the current times of all Star Trek and they had omitted a lot of Deep Space Nine and we were in a group chat and he had listed some of the Deep Space Nine episodes to go watch and I watched them and I was really moved by oh, awesome. all of them <laughs> yeah they're really really good um, yeah and that's I guess that's another reason too right I guess I really had thought I think I blocked that thing out of my mind because i was so upset that it like ruined like all of that and they just left out so many episodes and we'll talk more about that and we'll definitely 
going to refer back to you, Kate, when we get into kind of like the religious aspects of the show, mainly because, you know, that's kind of like what you did for a long time and like where you're like published and stuff. So we're, I'll refer back to you for that. Um, Alex, what about you? Oh, man. So, uh, I mean, this was the show that hit during my uh, kind of that, you know, that phase when your brain goes from really, really, you know, there's one way that you see the world and you start seeing, oh, wait, things are a little more flexible than you understood as like a young child. This show hit exactly during that period of my life, right? It ran from uh, 93 to 99, which was when I was 10 years old to when I was, uh, well, 16 years old. And so a lot of the lessons that came through in DS9 really expanded kind of just my understanding for not only what entertainment could be, but what my understanding of the social structure that existed in life was. So for me, it was an immensely impactful series. Yeah, great. And we're definitely going to talk about kind of like the gray areas in the show. And another reason why I think it is so great. So we'll kind of run into some quick background information. Um, Adrian, you didn't tell us how familiar you were with it. Oh, uh, I'm familiar enough to run this episode. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, I got, I actually got into Deep Space Nine kind of later, um, like when I was in college. So this is probably like 2012 or so. You know, I'd watched my dad's a big Star Trek fan. My family's a big Star Trek people. My wife just got a Star Trek tattoo like a few weeks ago. Like um, Star Trek's a big part of my life. But Deep Space Nine was like the one that I watched and I just couldn't get enough of it. I went back, watched it rewatched it i think there was like a period where i watched it like three times back to back because i just couldn't get enough of how different it was and how the characters were different from anything that i had seen before um and it's just been a big part of kind of like how i look at things and how captain cisco looks at things is what i've kind of taken with me since since that time um because you know this runtime like alex says is from 99 1993 so it is it is me years old um actually like a little bit older than me it's like a year and like nine months older than me because it uh, opens up kind of early on in in 1993. But Deep Space Nine is a big, big part of my life. It's my favorite Star Trek, and I will try to convert anyone who's never watched it into watching it at any opportunity, because I think it's that good. I can attest to that. I think the majority <laughs> of our, like, eight-year friendship has been him telling me to watch Deep Space Nine. Not that I've been against it. I just, I, I did start with the first season, and I haven't had time to just absorb it all, because yeah. I haven't so i i've absorbed it in pieces and it is because he's guided me to beautifully crafted episodes yeah and at the watch. end i'm gonna give i'm putting a show note in our show notes i'm putting like a kind of condensed list that i found that i think is like really really good that kind of cuts the episodes at a little bit in half which i think is better than the 176 especially in this day and age because i'm so behind on tv at this point like on streaming services wait, wait, can we, there's 176 yeah which is why, you know, if people don't watch, I understand. But, like, that 176 episodes flies by. Trust me. It, it really does. Yeah. I uh, just started my second rewatch uh, through, I think, oh, man, uh, beginning of quarantine. And I'm just up to season six, uh, episode 13, as of last night. So, yeah. Ooh. It's a meaty series. And sometimes you walk away from an episode and just need to decompress. Especially, yeah. well, we'll get back to that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so, for the background... Deep Space Nine ran from 1993 to 1999 in Star Trek years. Um, that's uh, 2,369 to 2,375 star date wise. So pretty far in our current future and has that weird place in like Star Trek. Like there's a reason why this is like the ugly stepchild because it's kind of smashed in between two of two Star Treks essentially. So it, basically comes in towards the end of the next generation and is around at the start of Voyager. So it's kind of in the middle of those two more 
what people would say like traditional Star Treks. And it's basically the first Star Trek that we get without Gene Roddenberry. Um, he's like been quoted as saying that he was worried about Deep Space Nine, but like the showrunners say that they gave that he got the that they they got the go ahead to do Deep Space Nine after his death because it is a little bit different in the way that it is structured. So like there's some contested things there. Um, some people think that Gene Roddenberry would have liked Deep Space Nine. Some haven't. If you're not familiar with Gene Roddenberry, um, refer back to one of our Star Trek episodes where Kate goes in pretty deep um, all about Gene Roddenberry and his contributions to Star Trek. So if you're not familiar with Deep Space Nine, I'm going to give a quick premise without too many spoilers, because I know this show's been out for going on, or now, what, 27 years? How old am I? How old am I about to be? 27? Yeah, so 27 years. I still think it's good enough to go back and rewatch and not go in with, like, immense spoilers. I think it's that good. So Deep Space Nine takes place on a former Cardassian space station, Tarek Noor, um, which in The Next Generation is seen in Bright um, Birthright, Season 6, where they're kind of like rocking like the promenade and stuff, but Deep Space Nine is definitely its own thing. So the Cardassians use the space station as a base of operations during their enslavement of the Bajorans on Bajor, the planet the station orbited. After the Bajorans have liberated themselves, the United Federation of Planets have administered joint control over the station with the Bajoran government. Shortly after their arrival, the Starfleet crew discovers a stable wormhole in Bajoran space, leading from the Alpha Quadrant, where, where basically we are at now, to the Gamma Quadrant, which is approximately three uh, 30,000 light years away. After the station is moved to a strategic position near the wormhole's entrance to safeguard it from the Cardassians, Deep Space Nine and Bajor quickly become the center of exploration, interstellar trade, political maneuvering, and open conflict. Threats came only not from the Cardassians, but the Klingons, the Romulans, but also from the Alpha Quadrant, um, but also from the Dominion who are coming from the, um, from the Gamma Quadrant. And they're basically an alliance of species from basically, it's like three kind of species. They kind of break it up and it's basically like the Dominion. They're very scary. Like it's not just, you're fighting just so the Klingons. Scary Federation. Yeah. It's like the scary Federation if it was scarier. If that makes sense. It's kind of hard to explain the Dominion. There's a whole lot of political maneuvering there and like you know twists and things like that, but they're pretty scary. I think um, the most interesting thing to call about the Dominion is that they genetically modify all members of their primary races to better suit what the uh, the founders of the Dominion want to occur inside their society. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's like, not terrifying at all. Yeah, it's like the Borg, <laughs> but a little bit scarier. But biological instead of technological. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like I would rather be assumed into the Borg than have... Yeah, okay, let's go. I mean, let's go with uh, scary Dominion people. Hey, I mean, like, the, so basically, if the Borg would assimilate you and then understand everything you knew about anime, the Dominion would say, you know, we don't want that kind of entertainment here. You don't like colors anymore. And, uh, and <laughs> so you would just be like, okay. oh, what is color? Why would I enjoy that? Yeah, and Kate would just be like, I just read manga anyway, so what is color anyway? <laughs> Touche. There's no, holding that. There's no holding her back from her fandoms. Yeah, yeah. she'd be like, what? What founders? No, thank you. <laughs> so basically, um, through that conflict, you know, you have, you start seeing kind of open conflict between like the Cardassians and the Federation and, you know, some, some ally ships and things like that. But, def but definitely Deep Space Nine essentially becomes a key military base for the federation in what is known as the dominion war um and is assigned the uss defiant to aid in its protection so unlike other star trek 
this takes primarily on the space station or things that happen within kind of the, the gamma quadrant or like the surrounding areas, not necessarily kind of doing the whole uh, exploring parts kind of unknown. Hmm. So the main characters of the show, and there are a lot of characters. This is more kind of, you have a bunch of characters kind of coming in and out and recurring characters, but what I would kind of deem as kind of the mainstay characters for the majority of the show be Benjamin Sisko. He is the commanding officer um, who is a human near Norris, who is a, his first officer and part of the Bajoran government. Constable Odo, who is a changeling wharf who comes in later in the series. He is the strategic officer or operations officer. And is of course the wonderful Klingon, one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek. I'm wearing my Teen Wharf shirt as we speak. Um, also comes in later in the season. Julian Brashear is a chief medical officer who is a human. Jazia Dax is a science officer. She's a trill. Um, Ezra Dax, who is a counselor, also a trill. If you don't know what trills are, we'll explain a little bit later on when we're talking about the characters a little bit more in depth. Miles O'Brien, also from Deep Space Nine, or from uh, The Next Generation, comes as an engineer. And then you have a kind of host of Cardassians. Um, Garrick, who is basically like a tailor. Think of like you know, a man from Uncle kind of situation with him. Golducott, who's a Cardassian, kind of not of a very nice guy. And Cork, who is a Ferengi bartender who has a um, pretty big part in the show. There's other characters that are that kind of come in and out and kind of gain prominence. But I think this is kind of our main cast here for sure. And the show does go on for seven seasons with a total of 176 episodes over that six-year span. Um, so a lot of Trek. A lot of Trek. For a Trek that isn't, you know, as widely loved as other Star Treks, there is a lot of it to kind of, to see, for sure. I have a question. Is I hopefully Kira, have an answer. Is Kira Nearest the first number, the first female number one? She would be, yeah. I mean, right? I hear, if this is and the third Star Trek. Possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it would make sense yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the first so, officer, but she's not technically with the Federation, so I don't know if like people would like, oh, well, she's not technically part of the Federation. She's, no, 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 but no. She's, they, they, she's a first officer. She's a number one. Yeah, I, she's, she's I will his number give one. her that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's definitely his, his number one for sure. Yeah, there's no say, question of the power structure there. Which I will say from like reading this list and everything, there are more women in this series than there are in, like, right off the bat. Um which this entire episode is just going to be Kate kicking herself for not watching the whole of Deep Space Nine yet and I'm about to go into a Deep Space Nine hole uh, <laughs> after this episode <laughs> a, a wormhole perhaps mm. <laughs> well uh, you, would, you would be correct and um, yeah there was just so much depth that they layered on all the characters there was one way I had to describe DS9 as compared to TNG it was depth right TNG was let's gallivant around the galaxy and have some popcorn and and dabble in, and basically go in and make a mess of whatever civilization or situation we stumble upon uh, DS9 is about hey we are here here's the situation I, I you know Cisco have been thrown into and we have to work together and deal with our problems you can't just magic it up and then go on to the next thing and i think that's really what gave so much legs to this series to the people who were able to sequentially watch it you know like i know that was one of the big complaints early on was people were used to pop in any tng episode and you're good yeah. 
This one, you know, my family had a ritual around it. Uh, it, would, it came on at 11 p.m., which was after bedtime for everyone. So father would record it, and then that would be evening, and then Sunday night after church, we'd all come back, sit down, watch it together, and then discuss it. And, you know, that's what made it work, because we were always consistently doing that. That is a wonderful family story and super wholesome. And, oh. and I, I'll fully admit here, Alex, that I love, have loved Deep Space Nine for a very long time, and I have not met another person who like loves Deep Space Nine? It's always kind of like you know, eh, it's it is it's there. It is heads and shoulders above just about every other Star Trek series. Uh, Picard comes close. Uh, Discovery was very entertaining, but TNG sits very firmly ahead of the pack because of the internal narrative, um, the fact that they deeply explored characters. They had three dimensional characters who were not just agreeing with you know, the Federation. And I don't want to take away the, uh, you know, the driver of your show here, but like, I mean, at the end of the day, right, this was a narrative, right? This was, all right, this was totally a strategic play by Paramount to try to one-up Babylon 5, which came out three yep. weeks later, right? It's first episode. Um, and, you know, to try, you know, it's weird battle between the producers of Babylon 5 and DS9 to get the episode out first. And DS9 happened, like I said, four weeks ahead of time. But, the fact that they both were going into this um, serial exploration of these specific narratives that would be spanned over seven years was, uh, frankly, a first in my lifetime, right? The only thing that came close between then and release, uh, uh, sorry, release, wow, uh, graduation for me, would have been, like, you know, a little bit of Gargoyles and a few, uh, I think it may have been, um, a couple other animated series tried to explore contiguous threads. It just didn't happen. Yeah. That's one of the things that kind of like, as y'all are talking about, mine is to me, like, I, I'm starting to question why I never gave it a shot at the script. I, I honestly think I was just a hard fan girl. And I think that's why I was like, oh, uh, you know, you know, put my chin yeah. up against all these things. And because yeah. you had a wholesome family moment and I had my mom telling me how much she thought uh, uh, Picard was hot and that, that was why <laughs> she liked it. And they were individual episodes, so they weren't long like Star Wars. That was my <laughs> my Star Trek experience right. with my mother. <laughs> well, to put something in contrast, my star first Star Wars experience was actually watching Spaceballs and not understanding that there was a difference. And so I'm like, wow, <laughs> this show is so weird. What is the Schwartz and why should I care about it? And why are they holding their lightsabers so low? Um, and so I was very turned off to Star Wars my entire life. And so this was, it's it's okay. I had a lot of friends who were, uh, who their only interaction with Star Wars was like the family guy episodes of Star Wars. Oh my. Um, and like, I hate it because like, they're not that far off from like what actually happens in the series. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you basically watch Star Wars, like, you know, very basically. All right. So we'll get into some of the why of those. Um, and I really love it because Alex has already brought up a lot of great stuff that we're going to talk about. And we definitely kind of get into those things kind of more in depth. Um, starting with kind of what we've alluded to so far is that Deep Space Nine wasn't initially successful. Like there wasn't that kind of instant love that we saw when we're talking about um, in our Picard episode when we're talking about the, the next generation. Like there, there isn't that love instantly, even for this or, you know, the original series. But they changed with the tides and they have kind of had a little bit of a resurgence in the last five to ten years. Okay. Um, I have to, it, I have to, de- I have to debate that there. I think it was actually that the rest of the universe caught up with DS9 rather than that DS9 somehow evolved with the times. 
like the no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like fair. evolve with the times. I would say like they just like kind of made minor changes like kind of throughout because like I mean I love Deep Space Nine, but that first season is like a little bit rough as like the characters are trying to like find their footing and kind of what they are as like characters. Um, towards the end of season one, some of that stuff definitely happens, and uh, I mean. Again, like this is just what other people were saying. I've loved the first episode. Like Emissary is like a fantastic episode where Picard gets, you know, yelled at, which I loved. I was like, dude, this dude is my hero so far. Like already, I'm already about yeah. it. Um, but just kind of like ratings wise. And if you look at like the okay. numbers and the ratings and things like that, it just wasn't good for it wasn't like good for like the first like three seasons. I will say I have met multiple people now within the last month that were like, oh, I didn't like Deep Space Nine at first, and then I started watching it as an adult, and it all clicked. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then if you just like look at some of like the listings kind of more recently within the last you know five years or so, in 2016, in a listing that included Star Trek film and TV series together, the series ranked third by the LA Times in 2017. What were Vulture the first ranked... two? I didn't look up the first two. Oh. I imagine probably the original series and The Next Generation. I didn't really look up lists because it's always going to be those ones at the that's, top. That's fair. It's always going to be those ones at the top. I don't think the original. I think it's yeah. actually I've the worst of the series before. by far. Right? I, yeah, I think it's only the reason it has that resurgence is that, frankly, it was an eye-opener the way that, you know, DS9 was an eye-opener for me for many people on different topics. The interracial yeah. kissing, the uh, exposure to new scenes and cultures, the idea of a future you could believe in with medical devices that helped you, right? I mean, that opened the mind, I think, in yeah. a way that it didn't happen for other people, Um uh, however, if you look at in 2017, Vulture did rank Deep Space Nine, the number one best live action Star Trek television show. In 2019, Popular Mechanics ranked Star Trek Deep Space Nine the ninth, or the 16th best scientific television show ever. Um, you also have What We Left Behind, if you want to kind of get a sense of like how much fans love the show. Um, crowdfunded $631,000 for a documentary that essentially is um, the cast coming back together, the writers coming back together, and kind of the writers more so pitching what season eight would have been like or what season eight could have been like, and the actors kind of reminiscing on how the show worked and things like that, which was released in 2018. But you can watch it um, with ads on Amazon Prime. It's really, really good. I highly suggest it. I watched it today in preparation for this episode. And I was like, holy crap, this is making me emotional. And I don't even have a relationship to all of these characters. But watching that documentary, like, let me know why I built mm -hmm. that relationship. Like, I was actually blown away because I had never known that much about Deep Space Nine when it comes to, like, all the things they did, which we'll get into the show. But, like, go watch that documentary and it's free. And free is good. Yeah, especially in these day and age. Like free is good. <laughs> um, I think what the documentary does really well, too, is it doesn't really give you, like, a whole lot of what happens, like, in the show. So there's still, like, more for you to learn. It doesn't give you, like, the whole show on a platter and say, here, this is what happens in the show. It kind of leaves some lot to be desired in terms of, like, wow, I want to go back and kind of watch this now. Uh, and then we actually got – Deep Space Nine actually got its first comic run in the last 10 years. It's been in other things. It's been, like, in the Q conflict and kind of – other other things but a you know deep space nine comic itself 
um, is now going on in a miniseries where Constable Odo is trying to figure out a murder. I'm covering that for the website. Um, it's pretty good. Go check it out if you like Odo. It is really, really good. It's IDW, right? IDW, yeah. It's really good. And there has been a couple of like this. A lot of some of the actors were kind of old, even when in 1993. So we had have some deaths from the actors in the last couple of years, which has brought back, at least from what I've seen, like on Twitter and stuff has brought back people to kind of play Deep Space Nine again on that on that run. Um, I know it has for me, for sure, especially um, with with Odo and um, Nog and Nog. Nog in the documentary. So good. I just want to. Yeah. He's so nice. It's, it's lovely. I mean, I just love some uh, of the discussions, like the backstage differences between TNG yeah. and um, DS9, right? DS9 very much felt like they had a lot to prove, and so they were a lot more serious with each other. And Jonathan Frakes, yeah. on the other hand, kind of treated the backside of TNG like a, you know, a, well, we'll call it playful. Um, yep. Right? And uh, there wasn't a lot separating Jonathan Frakes from Riker, really. No. In the worst, in the worst ways. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, but I mean, that's that just shows like the type of dynamic that was brought to those teams, right? Um, you know, DS9, I think they really understood that they were trying to convey things about weight. Uh, something I want to bring up that a lot of people forget is that, uh, you know, DS9 started uh, 93, right? Uh, apartheid in South Africa had been unraveling over the last two to three years and was some of the final legislation for it was in 94, so there's a lot of these really heavy themes. I've, again, stop me if you want me to wait, but like of colonization, of the influence of, of major cultures upon others, upon the existence of subcultures, religion, and all this, that were things that were being very much publicly figured out as the writers were exploring these spaces. A lot of people like to really reflect back and make the comparison between the Cardassians and space Nazis, and there's plenty of that there, right? I'm not going to even argue against yeah. that point. But people forget that Apartheid was a live event when the writers were literally planning this series. I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. I'm just, I'm just giddily excited uh, to get down to Lower Knees. So I'm going to kind of rush through a little bit of this, of this stuff here. So like I said before, it wasn't instantly beloved um, because a lot of people were worried that it kind of contradicted Roddenberry's vision since it's basically just a space station and they're not exploring um, while others think that Roddenberry would have liked the darker tones um, and the conversations um, surrounding those those things, George Takei was quoted as saying the series that came out immediately after was Deep Space Nine, talking about the next generation, which was the polar opposite of Gene's philosophy and vision of the future. So Star Trek lost its way then, and now people at Paramount are all new people. So you I... know, even some of the older actors... Yeah, I would really wonder if he would still say that today, right? Because when he made yeah. that exact quote, very much America itself was in the TNG phase of its own history. Technology was advancing. Things mm -hmm. were getting better. It seemed like progress was happening for, you know, for basically everyone of all orientations, right? But now looking at where we are, we are in our own DS9 era. Oh, God, I'm about to go off. Sorry. But <laughs> oh no, we're going to get there. We're going to yeah. get there because I'm we so are excited in. about this. We are literally <laughs> yes. in the DS9 four, era of our own history. We're four years away from something that's very like happening now. Like yeah. we're four years away from from, I, from that. So to George Takei's thing, and this is just my own. When I when I it, it came after I watched a bulk of episodes to teach how it's all religion in my class, and the reason I put it against Two Watchers the Watchers is that 
TNG had a very specific, not anti-religious, but exploring life without religion tone, which, I mean, obviously, Roddenberry is one of the most famous atheists, like, in existence. Sure. Um, And so that was something that, like, for me, when I kind of judged them against each other, I had a very hard time kind of understanding, okay, how are we actually going to do something with this versus how we've seen it represented in the past? And I will say I definitely didn't give it the fair shake just because, like, there isn't a lot of explanations of atheism in television at all, like ever, and nothing that does it from like an empathetic point. When it's shown in media, it's very like, this is bad, we'll find God. And Roddenberry, for me, gave me this really, this amazing realization within myself of what I was going through and how I was navigating like my, my past and, and how I saw religion. Um, but now having watched the documentary, having looked at a lot of stuff and the stuff we're going to talk about later, I very much think that this fits with Roddenberry's vision because of what Roddenberry wanted to do. Yeah. And I think you have to keep in mind that this series was very much targeted at someone with the kind of development space that I was in. My family was extremely religious. I was on track to be a pastor, not a game designer. Um, that would, would have been my mother's ideal <laughs> for my life, right? I was even sent to seminary in middle school. And well, we'll save that for another talk. But, um, <laughs> but like the fact that they approached it without coming at it and coming down on it actually opened the doors to this stuff being discussed and opened, and the yeah. show being watched by my family, who might otherwise have more carefully policed it. Instead, it was like, oh, well, look at them being respectful, even if they're disagreeing. Finally, someone gets us traditionalists, right? And I'm not yeah. traditionalist at all. I'm very well. Well, other things now, but um, <laughs> the uh, fact that that lowered the guard to open the possibility that these other ideas within the Star Trek universe explored in DS9 should be considered because it was considering our own viewpoints as possibly legitimate or possibly how it could be legitimized through how they approach the prophets, which we'll talk about, allowed all of this to come in without throwing up the guard walls that maybe TNG would have or uh, some of the later series did. Yeah, for sure. So again, um, again, not it was kind of critically acclaimed. But I think that's just more for like critics looking at it, not necessarily like Star Wars or Star Trek fans kind of taking a hard look at it. Um, there, there are some like distinct changes that that I'd see even in kind of going back through my, my rewatch. Um, that as like they're kind of getting their footing in like the writing room and what they're doing with the characters, and even as like the actors are kind of getting their own footing the show gets better and better each season. I think each season kind of builds upon itself to be better and better, which we'll talk about kind of in the next part where we're talking about long story arcs and serial and serialization storytelling that Star Trek or uh, Deep Space Nine um, implements. But I would, but I still say like, I would argue the season one is still really, really strong despite some of a lot of these changes. So some like big changes that you start to see from like, characters kind of go from one note personalities to more in depth um some of this is from the actors kind of being newer um and you can kind of see some of that in the documentary when they're talking about uh, while they're on set but also just kind of making sure that you're writing the characters differently so Bashir starts it off as kind of like an annoying kind of asshole really uh science guy know-it-all thinks that all the ladies want him kind of thing like if Riker was a smart science guy like that's kind of what he was playing um but as the show goes on and he understands that his salutatorian smartness isn't going to kind of get him all the things that he wants, he becomes deeper, more understanding, and really a really, really good character. Jazia Dax goes from kind of just being a bland kind of, she's just kind of there kind of character to a much more roguish and complex, well-written woman character who, like, 
knows her stuff and like smacks Worf around. Not smacks Worf around, but like. No, she literally smacks Worf around. There, there are three broken ribs in that series. Uh, and two of them are Worfs from Jadzia. So yeah. I'm that just saying. That is amazing. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. They have like a, a beautiful already. relationship. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. She's fantastic. Um, At the end of season two, Cisco starts to transition to a goatee. And by the season three, he's basically kind of a uh, shaved head goatee, which was basically kind of his look in a man called Hawk, um, which was what he did before. And they were trying to separate his character, Avery Bradley's character from his character in a man called Hawk and Cisco. But they eventually just like, kind of like let it go and let him be himself. And he just comes off as kind of, in my opinion, kind of more badass with a goatee and bald head. Um, in my and that opinion. was, and that was because they wanted to distance it from the urban stereo. Like they were so exactly. focused on like, well, we can't mm. have a black captain look, urban and i'm just like mm, this is one of those moments where no, you're doing is. more which is making it way more racist than if you just let him have his goatee yeah i mean his family's <laughs> from like bat like is in like baton rouge like this these this dude's probably rocking a goatee like his like his dad is like just let him yeah. rock the goatee um in season three they introduce the uss defiant which allows them which is like a super top secret super spaceship which basically allows them to have more space travel um, and things like that to kind of appease that part of the audience. And season four, Worf comes in to kind of Danny DeVito the show. And I say Danny DeVito the show because if you think about uh, when we talked about Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where they were getting ready to cancel, they had to bring in Worf to kind of help with like your ratings and to make you know other people happy. Which, uh, in my opinion, ultimately works out for the best. I love Worf, and I think he's a different character in this than he is in The Next Generation, which comes with you know three seasons of development, plus what you have in The Next Generation, in my opinion. And there's another really important point there which comes in, which is that um, Worf coming in opened the door to exploring the Klingon culture the way that Quark's mm-hmm. main character existence allowed them to start exploring the Ferengi culture. And that ended up becoming a really important part of the series going forward in the later seasons. Yeah, General Martok is like one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek, um, and has one of my favorite like lines like ever. Um, I think one of Adrian, you'll appreciate this. Uh, so in undergrad, my honors thesis helped me get into grad school was literally on Star Wars, Star Trek, and how folks treat it like religion. Um, and I broke down different religious systems within both of them because I'm a freaking nerd. Um, and one of them was looking at Klingons, and my advisor at the time was like, "You clearly have not seen Deep Space Nine." Go research how Klingons are developed in recent in Deep Space Nine and rework this this chapter. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that was how I learned. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate you bringing that up too. Um, I didn't want to get too much into it because I thought it would like kind of get us off into stuff that's um, you know not necessarily for this. But you're right. Like the the and we'll talk about this more when we kind of talk about the, kind of the world building, but you get more than just what the Federation's doing. You're getting what the Frankie's doing. You're getting what the Cardassians are doing. You're getting with like the Dominion are doing. There's a lot more that's going on than just kind of the Federation, which can kind of be what happens in a lot of the next generation episodes. Um, In season seven, Jazia Dax is replaced by Esri Dax, which in itself is kind of like a weird thing because she gets replaced like in like the last season. And then there's issues that go into that on like why she was replaced. Um, that the documentary goes into, but it's kind of like hard to figure out like what is right and what isn't in that situation. But um, Josiah Dax is a trill. And what happens with trill is that they basically pass on like this alien to like each 
um, a new body that's integrated with a already established person. So um, Jazia Dax was friends with um, Captain Sisko in her previous life. And then Ezri Dax gets integrated into the new Dax in Deep Space Nine, which is kind of like confusing. I don't know like how like a better way to explain that other than each new body gets like the experiences and things. So progressively becomes better. Uh, basically, um, you have a memory capsule. You can access all the stored memories of the previous hosts, and eventually you pick up their personality quirks because you're watching their home YouTube videos all the time. Yeah, it's game a, designer. Thank yeah. you. Anytime. Thank you. That works. <laughs> um, that's basically how that works. And for someone to come in and kind of be like the new, and I don't want to say like the new woman character, but like the new character who's playing Jazia Dax, who for six seasons is a fantastically written character, um, they were worried that they weren't going to be able to integrate her well, but she quickly becomes her own person within the span of one season and becomes a character that is, you know, now, you know, really, really loved. Okay. So. What makes this thing different outside of the fact that they are on a space station and not in a spaceship? Um, we're kind of getting to some of the things that we've talked about um, briefly, but not kind of more in depth. So one of the biggest things and why I like this series so much is because it introduces serialized storytelling into Star Trek. So Star Trek before this was mainly just one or two episodes to one storyline, and then they would go on to the next thing. That comes with kind of being space explorers and responding to different things. But DS9 stretches story arcs throughout entire seasons, which kind of feels more like anime arcs to me than really anything. So some would argue that it is serialized or at least semi-serialized. So you can't necessarily kind of just go back and watch one episode, but there are some kind of one-off episodes that you can um find there and it's kind of broken up into kind of major parts where you have where you're dealing with issues with the Bajor, issues with the Marquis, issues with the Dominion War, Section 31, the Ferengi, the Mirror Universe. Um, but by the end in season seven, it all kind of ties up together into a nicely wrapped package. And Alex mentioned earlier that there weren't a lot of things like that, and he's not wrong. Um, before Deep Space Nine, there really wasn't that much of serialization going on especially in the late 80s and 90s, mainly just soap operas or like dramas like 90210 are kind of the most serialized things. So when they start doing serialization, a lot of people didn't like it, especially because syndication is becoming a big thing around this time period. And it's hard to go back and watch a show when you just pops up on sci-fi if you don't know what's going on in season six, episode 14, if you don't know what happened in previous episodes. Um, which is hard back then, a little bit easier now because we can just binge stuff. But it was an issue when you're thinking about people who love syndication and loved watching whatever episode of Star Trek, the next generation or whatever episode of Star Trek, the original series, which probably is why so many, it takes so long for people to kind of get into it later on. It's uh, it's really interesting when you mark how we can that just because now one of the things that happens with a lot of critics is they'll uh, blast a show for being, oh, it's too monster of or whatever the equivalent that is for whatever genre show that they're watching. Which, one, is like, that doesn't matter. Is it a good show or not? I have a lot of issues with my fellow critics. But it, it's really interesting that, like, this is starting serialization, and now we've completely kind of gone it. Like, we expect serialization now. And anything that isn't serialization is either, one, a kid's show, or two, something that is automatically going to get knocked points just because it's not one yeah, 100% agree. I couldn't think of shows that I watch that aren't, like you said, aren't, that aren't like cartoons or like, you know, the newest season of 
Family Guy or you know something like that that aren't even serialization. Yeah, yeah, like you know all my favorite shows are serialized. Mine as well. In fact, when I I remember going uh, when I went to college and I uh, was studying Japanese at the time, I did CS Japanese, and um, I was told, "Oh, you should go to the anime club." I'm like, "Why would I want to do that?" Like, I remember seeing Dragon Ball; it went nowhere. Um, and, uh, so eventually they got me to sit down, uh, one, and then just watch four episodes. I'm like, oh wait, there's a narrative. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. This is a, this is fantastic. I haven't seen this in forever. And, you know, that was kind of one of those examples where that method of consuming things, the idea that there was an arcing narrative and you would finish it and then you would stop was just unheard of in anything American and successful. Everything was about, I love Lucy and pushing out more and more content exactly Mm -hmm. for cash. Technically, that's also one of the reasons why people hate Buffy season five up is because that's also when Buffy does it split from Monster of the Week to like long serialized form storytelling mm-hmm. and in a more like substantial way, um, which I didn't think about till just right now. Uh, yeah, that transition was happening mid to late 90s. Um, yeah. Yeah, and what I think this does, and what Alice kind of mentioned earlier, is that because of this, we get, I, in my opinion, more story develop, more character development, better storytelling, more world building, which we'll cover next than any other Star Trek, because we're getting seven seasons, 176 episodes with a lot of these characters. So, in my opinion, the ending feels more earned because if there's like one bad thing about serialization, is that you can do all this stuff, and if the ending is bad, everything else is bad. Looking at you, Game of Thrones. Thanks for ruining my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the only reason that uh, TNG, right, had an ending at all was that they bloody crashed the ship into a planet. Well, congratulations, yeah. right? Like, that's what they needed to do to basically make it clear. No, there will be no more. <laughs> right? Well, we and even the then, ship. they made three more movies <laughs> with the child ships. So, <sighs> Yeah, yeah. I, I just, it just feels like it's more, I, more earned, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like more better than a two-part season finale because uh, it just makes me care more about the characters, the story arcs, and kind of how everything is wrapping together more than I care about it in a 40-minute episode, if that makes sense. That's fair. But if it was bad, then it would have been bad, you know, like you know, how I made your That's fair because I, I will say when I think back about TNG, I'm not thinking of the whole of characters except for the card. Um, but a lot of it is like these really fond and intense memories for specific like three episode mini stories that happened versus like honestly TNG is Picard for me. That's it. And then they got Picard the show, and I was like, okay, this is all I wanted. And it's, it's just Picard. Um, which is something I'm currently realizing as I start to rack my brain to be like, no, TNG did. And I'm like, no, it didn't actually. I no. just need to, I just need to watch DS9. <laughs> Even the Borg, right? Even the Borg, which we think of as a major narrative of TNG yeah. was what, maybe eight episodes, right? It was very yep. scattered around. Um, and even then it didn't really explore the themes of what was it to be mm-hmm. Borg, right? That didn't happen until, um, gosh, was it Discovery? No, it was, um... Actually, even more so in Picard, right? Where he yeah, went back Picard's and went really into, into, into the cube, right? Okay. I don't want to spoil mm-hmm. anything for the other series watchers, but... Um, <laughs> no worries, yeah. no worries. And like, even but we kind of get into it. Like, yeah, um, even in Voyager, we didn't about get that much through what Borg was, just what the Borg did, so... Yeah. 
Yeah, and I would argue that in the villains of this show, which I think is like amazing how they did it. Like they just came up with like three villains and then they just put them together as like one thing. I think that's a ridiculous way to like a ridiculously intelligent way to make your villain instead of just having it be the board. Like, oh no, there's like layers, there's levels to this. They're the enemies that they're fighting in Deep Space Nine, which is really really great. But so when you're talking, we're talking about kind of world building and character development and things like that. I think this gives us a much more realistic version of what our universe would be like. Especially like if we don't get better in a lot of ways, but what it would be like if we had to interact with people who are different from from us. So again, Deep Space Nine is primarily on the space station, so we are seeing lots of species and governing delegates who regularly show up. So there's lots of daily interactions, rather w- daily interactions with aliens, aliens in my soap opera. That's what I want. We're in space. <laughs> give me aliens. Um, and I'm thinking back to it. There's so much human stuff in the first two Star Treks. That like they're they're not main. There's like hardly any alien main people. Yeah, give me uh, they. I mean, because they were mostly because they were mostly trying to deal with the conflicts of humanity with themselves, right? They weren't really looking at yeah. multiculturalism. Yeah. I mean, what is Star Trek, right? We play. It's played up as this big multicultural thing. No, it's a bunch of white dudes running around in a paradise, right? Flying around in a metal saucer and then dragging everyone else along, living the way they want them to live. Um, DS9 is about, hey, here's all these different people find, make, creating, creating this, frankly, this husk of a Cardassian nasty mining facility and turning it into something that was home to them, whether it was the Klingon chef on the promenade or Quark setting up his bar or, um, you know, uh, Jedzia trying to basically hit on every single thing that moved and was interesting. That is in... amazing. Jadia was phenomenal. Yeah. There's this running joke about this one character who you never see, but... Apparently he had a transparent skull, and every time she says it, she just says, "Ah, oh, I know he had that transparent skull." And everyone else will see, will just look at her, and she'll just be like, "Yeah, I really, he was, I really miss that guy. I can't believe he broke up with me." And you just like you just, she just delivers it so well. That's actually yeah. something that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, there, so I think when i think back on on tng and i think specifically on the lessons that get taught it's about humanities as advancement and humanity with technology like all of the deeper layers or whatever it's not about how humans interact with other humans or how humans interact with difference it's about how we adapt to new technologies how do we maintain humanity through new technologies and a lot of that's done through data and like how we identify the other through technology which I think is a very good thing to have, especially as we move into a world that is highly technological. Um, And, you know, robot ethics is a thing. Uh, But go listen to our Isaac Asimov episode. Um, But at the same time, now that, like, listening to you guys talk about this and just, like, what I've seen and kind of picked up through osmosis, like, having that very... A layered story that looks at the differences of people living together is something that is very different than technology and becoming intrusive upon an existing ecosystem, which is essentially what the larger narrative of the Borg and and synthetics and all of that is Mm. in TNG and then moving to this piece, which is very much like, yeah, but we don't have any nasty technology. We're just cooking in our restaurant and serving drinks. And there <laughs> yep. we have some political differences, which is yep. probably a much more realistic understanding of how we interact as people with 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we made a comment a bit a moment ago about how Jedzia was kind of like the aggressive female pursuer, right? Which wasn't portrayed too often except in, yeah. you know, a toy for uh, Riker, right? Um, yeah. But there's even more about that, right? In that they also explore, they don't explore just sex and courting, they explore relationships. Look at the O'Briens and what they did with them by taking them from the space station. All of a sudden, the stress is a military family, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Keiko doesn't want to be dragged along in this, but she does it because that's the life she's part of. And how they negotiate that very, they, don't, they show it as a frayed relationship. It's not everything is hunky-dory and they've got this kid. No, there's stresses from raising the child. Well, we'll even go into the whole Kira involvement in the exploration of a polyamorous triad, though they didn't call it out as such. That happened, I think, season three. Um, and, um, you know, just the exploration of, hey, how do you negotiate a relationship being under all this stress and, you know, all this pressure? And just grounding it through the most relatable yet frustrating, typical, stereotypical toxic male, which is O'Brien, who's trying to do his best despite all of his pro programming. You know. Um, anyways, sorry, I'm going off. I'm going off already. We get no, to, no, I, I think that's well, I think that's well said because like my next point was like interpersonal species relationships, and we don't really get that in the previous two tracks outside of you know Kirk banging green ladies yeah. and then like leaving. <laughs> Yeah, that's why like, Kirk will never since... be the best captain because that's all he did. That's all he did. He didn't do anything but bang green ladies, <laughs> and it's frustrating. Yeah, no, Kirk, or... Kirk was a sensational, sensory captain. He wasn't a, a leader the way that Picard <laughs> was, and he wasn't someone who dealt with the nitty gritty of life like, um, you know, the captain, uh, Captain Cisco did, and just. You have to realize that this is an evolution and I think a revelation even by the writers themselves of understanding and exploring this space that, oh, hey, there are additional layers we need to dig into here. Yeah, and, you know, and then you have in The Next Generation, you have, you know, Kirk 2.0 with Riker banging people and then, yeah. you know, sexual tension with Diana. Who I guess I is technically tension. half human. He's half but... human. And I... sexual sexual tension or sexual harassment. I mean, that line gets kind <laughs> yeah, of thin in some episodes. I am ashamed of how much I was in love with Riker when I was younger, but I also was in love with Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Mm. I think Riker's the worst out of those three <laughs> upon rewatching TNG. I, I give the guy um, mad respect for his chair mounting abilities, okay? Yes, yes. That is a 10 out of 10 right there, S tier. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've. I think I'm just going to rewatch TNG through Deep Space Nine so that I can understand uh, some things. Because I feel like I have very big rose color colored glasses. And then I've actually been thinking a lot about Riker like the last couple of weeks. Because I saw, I read a, like a piece on him and I was just like, oh no, Riker. <laughs> you are Kirk 2.0. Yeah. Um, and like, like we mentioned before uh, earlier, you do get those relationships definitely with O'Brien, but I really, really, really love Worf and Jazia Dax's kind of relationship and how that's explored. And even how, you know, just because she gets put into um, Ezra Dax, it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be together. Like, that's yeah. weird and just makes no sense when you talk about kind of like what consciousness is and who people are. So even that's explored. Um, yeah. Outside of just kind of relationships that way, you have, you know, a space station 
that's allowing for kind of interaction and conflicts and friendships between species and different rules and ideologies. So the Ferengi and their rules of acquisition and how that conflicts a lot with like star fleet Everything. regulations as well as like the Jorn <laughs> regulations. Everything. <laughs> um, but the reason the, that, but they also transcend boundaries because their greed is so universally understood. <laughs> Everyone's like, okay, I know exactly what you want. You don't give a damn about spying. You just want to make commerce happen. Cool. We'll commerce with you. We know you're going to cheat us, but you're cheating the Federation just as hard. So everything works exactly. out. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you want to send me your best, your, your favorite rule of acquisition, I'm always up for it because I love them. And it's one of my favorite parts of Quark's. <laughs> character never spend more for an acquisition than you have to i live by that <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh uh, some of those are just they just there's these moments where you just kind of realize oh they're really talking about us just as a civilization every time the friend you quote something and you're just like wow well, yeah that's true but it feels so much better to hear it from a weird ear to early end <laughs> yeah and honestly, yeah, I think one of my favorite, my favorite ones. I love his inter Quark's interaction with Warp is always great, mm. um, and his interactions like with the Klingons because like what I what is I think it's like uh, you know, never never cheat a Klingon if if you don't think you can get away with it or whatever. It's kind of like you know don't cheat a Wookie kind yeah. of yeah. situation, which I just I just love it. I love and, it. and the bro and the bromance between Odo and Quark, both of them can, yeah. can completely portraying that they hate each other. But every time the chips are down, they do everything in their power to take make sure the other sure the other one's okay. Yeah, those are the moments that I love. Uh, Odo, have hold on, sorry. Odo is smooth face guy, right? Odo was the changeling. Yes, yes. he was the one yeah. who okay. could shapeshift, but not into other humanoids. He just couldn't. Yeah, he couldn't achieve that level of sophistication. Um, you also have like the Car <laughs> the Cardassians coexisting on the station because there are some Cardassians on the station, which obviously brings up conflict between them and the Bajorans because you know they occupied that their planet. Um, of course, the religious differences as well when you're talking about how the Bajorans have their religious takes compared to what the Starfleet's mandates are and things like that. And into that, um, you get a much different take on religion in general in Deep Space Nine uh, because of these kind of long arcing story arcs. It's not just and again, I know it sounds like I'm like I'm like bashing on Deep, uh, the Next Generation. I love the Next Generation. The Next Generation is fantastic. I love Picard. I share my love for Picard. There are four lights. There are four lights. I love it. I'm all about it. Um, but Picard like goes to like this planet and they're like, oh, you you like religion, dummy? And then like. <laughs> Oh, sir, no, no, <laughs> okay, no, no, right. no, 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 right. no, 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 we're not, no, what Picard right. does, kind of, and kind who, of. no, kind no, of. they make him a god, and it makes him very uncomfortable, and he states, you have moved past this piece, and now I have disrupted this, and I have become the Picard, this is, I am not your god, I shouldn't be your god, Let's go back to the other things. Please don't idolize me in this way because when this happens, I'd go, uh, I can't even think of the word. When ideology manifests itself within one human, one person that can wield power and has tangibility, it is the downfall of different types of folks because it is a problem because absolute power corrupts absolutely. I completely so, no. disagree. Give me all of the absolute power right away. <laughs> hey, I, I have I have history of running small nations here. Okay. 
So he did not go in and say, you like religion, you're dumb. He said, oh my gosh, I totally set you off your path, which you, because because remember, these are proto-Vulcans and they are, they are reliving the history of the Vulcans, which is to essentially move away from these ideological views and move towards logic and a philosophy-driven society that is based on logic versus pure emotion and uh, power being in one being. It's how the Vulcans run their society. So he wasn't downing their religion. He was just saying, please don't make me the Picard because you have a trajectory to do. And we've totally ruined this for you. But, you know, we are talking about DS9 tonight, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's okay, we got lots of religion to talk about here in DS9, right? From the, uh, I loved that the writers kind of took the approach like, okay, how could we legitimize a faith, right? And said, well, maybe there's beings who genuinely have information, others don't, and would pass it along would relay it in fact if you look at the structure of the wormhole aliens they are actually a re-imagining uh, of the judeo-christian uh, origin myth right of this race mm-hmm. not only incepted beings into existence but imprisoned their outs their outsiders on a planet to be basically prisoned to be separated from the holy uh heavens which is the wormhole as they reveal i don't want i don't want to go into too much of this and spoil the entire series but it's then and then placing the living species on there and giving them the knowledge to be able to endure the temptations, the dangers that their own prisoners being encapsulated and trapped on Bajor presented to the people. And that was what they were doing was arming them to survive the imprisonment that they inflicted to make their lives convenient in the wormhole. Right. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and <clears throat> which is like a little bit different, than like like proto, you know, proto Vulcans compared to like advanced beings the Bajor are space you know faring people they're just they just don't want to join the federation um but they're worshiping advanced species because they're not gods but they're godlike in the same way that like Q is essentially like that's what I was going to say technically the absence of religion in Star Trek is something that doesn't make sense uh so uh Emil Durkheim Literally, the entirety of my academic career is built on Emil Durkheim's view of functionalism. Functionalism, when it comes to religion, is that people believe in religion because it performs a function. And that function can be anything from answering questions to genuine, just this makes me feel good. And so when you have such powerful beings in, in, the, in the universe... Q is one of them, and it's one of the things when you do look at Picard and Q's interaction, there is that level of god-like peace, and Picard's thwarting of Q in different ways is supposed to be overcoming that. But when you look at the Bajorans and the Prophets, because I actually really love the Bajorans, and I really love how they formed Bajor, and I real and that's why I taught it in, 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 in the class that I taught, because at its core it makes no sense for there to be no religion in a future because it is just something people do and position themselves around, whether you call it religion or not, because everybody has to have something that performs a function. It's the same way, because when you think of religion from a religious studies perspective, a historical perspective, a sociological perspective, it isn't about believing, it isn't faith-based, it's what that faith performs for people, or in this case, aliens. Have you read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind yet, Kate? 
I have not. I think you would love it. It actually goes into a deconstruction of the practical functions of religion within human society, especially earlier human societies. Mm -hmm. And it was actually, he actually went through a breakdown of which societies tend to break apart and societies without a um, extra um, national uh, knowledge base, right? Basically, uh, the way of kind of saying it is that religious religion performs a useful function, whether it's true or not, right? Of grounding yeah. people, of connecting them and handling this sort of um, balance between purity culture, which I personally abhor, but, uh, and also this idea of, um, collective buy-in right um there's this yeah. great tale of there were these aqueducts uh in i can't remember what nation i don't want to mess it up and basically he everyone had to take care of their uh aqueduct so that the water would flow downhill to the next tribe and so there's a series of tribes that need to work together and so by uh, deciding collectively that these these uh points where they have to turn the water back and forth would be adorned with a statue of a god uh, who would be a river spirit or whatever. Again, I'm slaughtering this. Uh, it would basically say, we all believe that these need to be shared equitably, and so the God's gaze needs to be shared equally upon each field, was a way of ritualizing the fact they needed to share water with all of the different fields down downriver from each other. Um, and yeah. that's just a very practical example of how that sort of generational lesson uh, could transmit on even though there was no books no narrative right it was all spoken culture at that yeah point. and that's and that's one of the things too and when, when we look at because when specifically in the research in in the studies that i did and what i wrote about it was specifically how like even when we claim we have no religious backing like the way people consume media in certain ways fulfills those practicalities like people who say oh i'm gonna be a jedi and then learn things from the jedi <laughs> the good things from the jedi and then like <laughs> And like there, there are these moments where we use pop culture to ground us in different settings. And in the same way you said like, oh yeah, Deep Space Nine opened my mind. That was performing a moral framework that is a situation and a function that religion can also have. And then you look at something like The Sacred and Profane, and I think it's by Mircea Eliade, which is old dead white dude. Like <laughs> we've, we've, we've progressed past it, but he has this concept of herophany, which is an eruption of the sacred. And so very much looking at how y'all have talked about the wormhole and y'all have talked about the prophets and y'all have talked about Bajor and everything like that. It's very much structured under, um, over this idea that upon interruption of the sacred, you then have something form around it. You don't know what it's going to be, but something will always form around it regardless of how it is. All this is to say, I have now, trend, I have now crossed over to the religion isn't inherently against Gene Roddenberry's views of the world. So <laughs> do you want to go into this, uh, just expound on this for us? Because I, I definitely agree with what you were saying about the concept of sacred, right? As a type method of preservation of yeah. knowledge, right? Or of even of, Hey, this is what kept us safe. Yeah. And, and cause it, it's this idea of you have, you have the profane and the secular, which ultimately, so you have the sacred and the profane profane ultimately means secular devoid of any sort of sanctity. So like, um, if, if you're walking around in your house and you like essentially say there are no screens in my room, you're creating a sacred space because that's a space where one action is performed and one action is not performed. And that's a barrier. And then anything that happens outside that sacred barrier is then profane. So if you go into that room, bring a screen when you've labeled it as a no screen barrier, you're actually introducing profanity and secularism into a sacred space. Um, it's like one of the really like, uh, 
practical ways to kind of explain it. And so when you look at the way they treat the wormhole and you look at the way that their interactions guided by the prophets and even how uh, you explained that they were, that all of this exists to help arm the, the, uh, uh, the Bajorans in this, in, in their long ass battle of being subject to all sorts of atrocities. Um, it's very much balancing those pieces. Um, I use my religious studies degrees today. Wow. Yeah. How, long is, <laughs> how long has that thing been sitting on the wall? Um, <laughs> yeah. About four I, years. Uh, I mean, that, that's just a phenomenal analysis of it. And believe me, I am all about those pro that, the profane. So I love it. Um, the, you know, it's just a phenomenal experience when you've lived within a box for a portion of your life. And then suddenly you take a peek over the edge of that box and you see alternatives and you go out, you reach over, you're like, oh, this kind of can fit in my box. Well, maybe I don't need the wall of that box. And you kind of like open it up a little bit, right? And so much of human life, I think, is about our parents creating a box for us, trying to make it as safe as possible, and then us deciding where and when we're going to poke holes in it and accepting the consequences of those holes. All right, but yeah. back to DS9. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no worries. There's literally, if you're a patron, uh, there's literally a bullet point in here that says, Kate talk here since she's a religious studies person. So I fully anticipated that happening, and I'm glad it did. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we can move on a little bit from there, just talking about a kind of harder look at what the Federation does and if the Federation really is like the best thing for everyone. Um, the Bajorans kind of push back against like the Federation being kind of like their, uh, they're kind of like their savior in a way, right? Because they're, they take a lot of pride in the fact that they kind of liberated themselves. Um, and can their actions kind of be morally justified? A lot of the times that's covered a, a whole bunch as well. Um, is a federation xenophobic so there's a big arc where nog who is a ferengi um you know, young man who tries to get into the starfleet and there's a whole lot of pushback there even from captain cisco himself because he's worried that nog is trying to kind of get one over on the federation um because of his relationship to court and also a bunch of issues around surrounding affirmative action as well even when he's in there not even being fully accepted by like his peers once he finally does get into the federation yeah there's it two reminds... fantastic moments right uh and kate i, I apologize i don't want to cut you off no 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 go right? ahead no no oh. no you've um, watched this show so <laughs> okay it's uh there's like two really important moments right one is quark's monologue from the Jem'Hadar, and the other is eddington's monologue at the end of for the cause that really break down like hey you know, we go into Star Trek Next Generation just assuming this utopia is great and has no bad consequences. DS9 is like, no, there are issues with this way of life that don't fit everyone else. And why don't you look at how this form of decision-making, you know, hurts the Maquis. It hurts, it creates struggles for Quark. It creates struggles for Nog, right? And in that even as much as they think of themselves as high and mighty and better, they're not always better, and they don't always make the right decisions in the right place the right time for everyone. And there's genuine suffering that comes from being Federation. And that's just an absolutely essential form of breaking down something that you believe in and being able to reject it for a time, looking at it, seeing its flaws, and then, coming, then bringing it back and accepting it. And that was, I mean... I only got a taste of that type of thing when you look at how how Ensign Roe was treated in TNG and then how Roe uh, reacted to actually joining the Federation and what she was asked to do 
there and her conflict with Picard, which is extensive. Like they don't get along and there's big reasons for that. And I think, uh, so I did a little bit of research on Roe and she was one of the reasons why, like one of the, like the pushes to create Deep Space Nine and the way that they did because of the stuff that they just kind of glazed over in TNG. I wouldn't say glazed, but like, cause she has consistent conflict within this, like, I am Federation now, I am with this now. And I think that that was my first glimpse, because like, we don't really get a lot of negative views of the Federation. I think like the first time that happens is the, maker, the making of a man when they're trying to decommission Data, and then the next time this really happens is when you have Roe introduced um, leading into design. And I think uh, I'm remembering what somebody told me, because I really liked the way that they confronted the Federation and the the underbelly of the Federation in Picard in the series. And somebody was like, yeah, all of that stuff was laid, like all that groundwork was laid in Deep Space Nine, where you actually got this deep critique of this idealized Federation of planets, which is what we did get from Roddenberry, was this, in the future, everybody can work together, everybody will work together, and not much exploration of the outliers that will obviously happen because xenophobia exists and it's always gonna exist because of how his brains are wired and it takes active trying to jump over those things and you have to try to do that and instill systems that break down those xenophobic nation notions um and so yeah and ro is probably one of my favorite characters in tng outside of picard um so yeah everything i know about the bajorans i mostly got from ro and then, yeah. like, the stuff I researched for my class when I taught it. <laughs> yeah, and then even from there, and this is, like, a topic that, I don't know, people argue that Roddenberry wouldn't like either. But, you know, there's a whole arc about the Dominion War and, you know, issues and the issues that there. But it does tackle it on multiple fronts. And it does give us kind of, like, a darker look into those things, which is, like, for good or bad. Um, I'll preface this by saying that, like, I'm not a veteran, nor do I know the experiences of what it's like to deal with those things. Um, but they do have a lot of topics on things that people that I'm connected to do talk about on a daily basis. So, like, the PTSD things. Kira Norris is a former liberator, like, of her planet, and they play on that a lot. And that really informs on how she sees the Cardassians and her issues and struggles to get... Um, over those things, particularly in duet, which is I think like uh, I don't remember like the actual um, episode number, but that's in season one. I think it's episode eighteen. I think um, really plays on her ability to kind of be impartial, even as the first officer on a space station that is going to interact with Cardassians. Um, you know, fears of returning back to service. So Nog in in it's only a paper moon fantastic fantastic episode nog loses eventually loses his leg and de deals with the struggles for that or returning to duty after something like that um government or just kind of shady organizations making doing things behind the scenes despite kind of the um you know utopian kind of way that we think that the federation and things are going on so things like with section 31 that isn't technically part of the federation but you know is doing things in hopes of helping the federation which is you know they're they're, they're helping the federation they're, they're part of that somewhere um so we're talking about those things and we've talked about this a little bit at the beginning and i'm just kind of kind of speed through this because we're um getting to be a little bit over time but the show really does, especially now, really speak to the past and its potential implications for us in 2024 or, you know, in 2400. So far beyond the stars, 
is one of my favorite episodes. It's where Siskel goes back to the 1950s and he is a writer and has to deal with like the race issues that are surrounding that time. And um, yeah, I don't want to spoil the episode too much, but like the issues that, that come with that and he delivers are like a really, really great performance, but this is still stuff we're seeing now with um, you know, prejudice against people of color in all kinds of spaces that is still going on even 27 years after that episode aired um, past tense part one and two kind of more a very rare part one and two kind of thing for the series. But by the 2020s, the government reacting to serious problems of homelessness, homelessness and unemployment created special sanctuary districts, essentially walled off sanctions of the city grid in most major cities, unfortunately, well-established, um, well-established with the benevolent intent of providing free housing and food, as well as prospects for future employment, the sanctuaries quickly uh, degenerate into inhumane internment camps for the poor. Even though people with criminal records were not allowed inside the sanctuaries, it didn't take long for the homelessness and unemployed to be uh, joined by the mentality, uh, by joined by the mentally ill and other more violent and social outcasts. If I read that to you now, we can probably see some of that going on hmm. now, like in 2020. And this is, um, lead, which leads to the bell riots and more kind of police brutality and things like that. And government brutality against people, which we are experiencing even now. Um, and I think yeah, this yeah. is a much deeper sense into what we get in other you know things. Cause you kind of even back in, cause they do do some of this stuff in, the original series but they do it in the way with like aliens and stuff this is really yeah. more you know like humans are kind of shitty because this is and... really the first time it's actually like it's looking at race it's not alien yeah. as and yeah. as an as an allegory for racism which is what happens yeah. all the time in sci-fi this is actual no this is what's happening this is racism cisco experiences it in these pieces yeah, and they uh, do we want to see on this topic? Can I bring up a couple other fantastic social issues they really explored in? No, yeah, yeah. Feel, feel free to so, bring, bring I, them up. These are like, just the two that come to my mind in the forefront. No, but I mean, like that's been a big issue. But like also this year, like transgender uh, rights have come out very much in the last six to nine months, right? And I remember there was an episode where um, Curzon Dax was friend with a uh, with a uh, Cleon, and then Jadzia walks up. And, he, and the guy grabs his, ah, oh, Curzon, my friend. She's like, Jedzia now. Jedzia, fantastic. Right? N without it, without blinking an eye, except that, or that the dead name versus the new name, right? And later on, um, the uh, lesbian relationship, which we now call lesbian relationship, at that time it was just a trill relationship between Jedzia and one of her former lovers, former lovers, right? And the way that they dealt with very blatantly, looking back at it now, at the time I didn't get it. I was just like, oh, this is a really sad episode of them not being only friends anymore. Now I look back at it just three weeks ago and I'm like, oh, this was an allegory for the inability of two female partners to come out and say to the world, yes, we are together. We care about each other because the cost to our career, our lives, and even our safety um, and the legacy of our, our, our everything we've done, it would be obliterated by it. And I just, just hit me right there because I have so many friends who just lived that right into the 90s, into the early 2000s. And now just being able to look at that and be like, oh man, how far off were we? that that episode caused a tremendous outcry by the people who were able to read into that message. Yeah. And I think one of, one of the important things too is like thinking back on this, 
I love TNG for for what it did, but it is very much it it it, it did something very different. Whereas DS Nine, I feel like. I can only speak from the place of someone who has picked up information by osmosis, hasn't watched the whole thing, whatever, at me if you want, but, like, I do feel, like, at the end of the day, the heart of what Roddenberry wanted to do was to show what happens when we find a way to get this piece, but what he didn't do was show the getting part. He showed the yep. other end. And so, like, hearing you all explain these things, and specifically, I've I've watched... um uh, I watched the two episodes or the the few the few past tense uh, and far beyond the stars. I've I've watched those because Adrian has suggested them, and they were moments where it was very much like, yeah, this there's no if ands or buts around it. Like you can't because like the thing that happens in sci-fi, it's a lot. It was like, oh well, there aren't any Latinos in space, or oh there, you know, you can't make that racial thing. You can't make that that larger narrative. And here, it just very much put it right there. Um, and, uh, the guy who, Avery, the guy who played Cisco directed Beyond the Stars, correct? I, I mean, I know, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't know off the top of my, okay. my head. I think, Maybe I, I missed think, it in I, the yeah, documentary. But. I think in the documentary they said that they were going to direct the episode and then they realized that yeah, Avery he was Brooks the only person, yeah. They said that yeah. he was the only person who could tell that story and so he ended up doing that episode and like i've read more into it and they were doing it to very much reflect rodney king and everything like that and then like yeah. now it's just kind of like it's still happening mm. <laughs> and it's sobering and even when you bring up the other issues like same-sex relationships and transgender rights like those are still like yeah they even <sighs> handled the issue of surrogate motherhood in one particular yeah. relationship, I won't go into detail because it spoils a bunch of stuff, but there's two main characters in the cast who become surrogate parents to each other when there's an issue. And walking yeah. through all of the, the innate jealousies that come in that space when someone else is bearing the child you thought you should have born or, you know, the dynamics of living together, right? It was just well explored by characters you loved who all handled it very respectfully. And I just yeah. don't think of many series that was willing to do these things. These are topics that never didn't even come up again in my own mind for another 10, 15 years. Um, and it's just, you know, and uh, all right. So we should probably like cover any of the major points you want to do, but we have to talk about Goldicott before we end the podcast. Are we going <laughs> to? Yeah, um, we can, we can definitely get into Goldicott because I was going to say, I was going to, I said the crew here, but it's mainly the cast because the crew is like very kind of like limited in what the actual crew is, mm. but the cast like really breaks away from the standard roles that we get from like other shows. Like you don't have, I, like, I would, I wouldn't even argue that you don't have like a Riker type character. You don't have like a, you know, Data or, um, you know, Spock type character like in the show. Um, where you kind of have those mirrors between the original series and the next generation. They're just more complex, in my opinion, and a little bit deeper, with the exception of Picard, because Picard's Picard, and he's like... yeah, He gets all the depth in the series. <laughs> let's let's, let's be that. Patrick Stewart as a human being is a man of a phenomenal story on his own. Yeah. And the fact that he carried that through to everything he brought in his performance is just phenomenal. He's he's his, Patrick Stewart and, yeah, Picard are just a, a separate class. They have their own little special bubble, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but like to like but to, it, to that point, um, like DS9 really does a really good job of even making like characters you're not supposed to like, you like them and you want to see yeah. more of them, like Goldie Cott. 
which I'll let you definitely if you want to. Why don't tell you? Why don't you go through your breakdown of Captain Cisco first, and then I'll go over and take the the villain right and go through that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that works. So it's no surprise to anyone if you listen to our Captain's episode. But if you haven't listened to our Captain's episode, I'm going to tell you why Captain Benjamin Cisco is the best Star Trek captain. Um, one, I'm biased. He's my first Star Trek captain. He's my favorite Star Trek captain just in general. So that's already makes him better than everybody else. Um, but just kind of more to that, he is the first central, the first uh, person of color to be the central character in Star Trek. We do have um, people of color in the other Star Treks, but they aren't the, they aren't helming the ship. They aren't doing all of the things. We don't even initially see him as the captain. He starts off as a commander and kind of grows into the leadership position of being a captain of um of deep space nine he's basically like the inversion of picard in my opinion he doesn't even like picard if you need some like context here when picard was a borg and he's locutus picard killed his wife and he is a widower who has to like be a single father because picard killed his wife and like in the first episode they have that interaction and it's clear that cisco does not like picard and we don't ever really see anybody in Starfleet talk to Picard the way that Cisco does, and that just immediately like, set me like, "Oh, this dude's a little bit different. Like he's he's feisty, um, so feisty, in fact, that in episode six of the first season, where Q comes in, um, Q, who you know from the Next Generation, is kind of a jerk and annoying and does whatever he wants because he doesn't think anyone will challenge him." And he challenges Cisco to a fist fight. The first first episode, the first scene they're together, he grabs him, he grabs Q by like his collar and is like, bring everyone back now. And then they fight, and then Cisco punches him, and he's like, Picard never hit me. And he's like, Oh, yeah, well, I'm not Picard. And it kind of just sets off his trajectory of just being a little bit different. Yeah, Picard held a whole ass trial for humanity. Um, he didn't hit he didn't hit Q. <laughs> he said, he said bruh, I am not here for this. Go away. I am not the one. Um, he's also dealing with a much different type of crew and he just interacts with them kind of a little bit differently than our other captains have. So um he's definitely you know, we're dealing with like Starfleet people in our crew, but this crew is much bigger, so He's dealing with Starfleet Clue, but he's also dealing with Odo, who's a shapeshifter head of security, who was as good at having tantrums as he was solving mysteries. Kira Nerys, a Bajordan freedom fighter, who dealt, who has to deal with letting go of her past and struggling with taking orders. Um, he has to, from Starfleet, he has to deal with Cisco having to deal with Jazia Dax, who is basically his old mentor in her previous life. Now he has to mentor the woman who was his mentor, which you know, lends to an interesting relationship. You know, Miles O'Brien um, with all of his things and his interactions, particularly with Dr. Bashir, because they could become really good friends. You know, later uh, Commander Worf comes in and is the Worfiest Worf Worf. And, you know, Cisco also not afraid to tell Worf to go jump off a cliff when it comes <laughs> down to it. Uh, so nothing is dealing. I think he has like the most diverse crew, just, you know, species wise, but also kind of personality wise to deal with. And he does it fantastically he's very well respected um he's also a single father which comes up with own set of relationships and quality moments with his son um you know some around race some with him becoming a man and things like that mm. that episode uh, where to... that episode where um jake goes into the like they travels in the future shows jake as the old man waiting for his father that made me cry yeah. i mean that watched like that is one of the few episodes where i was just bawling at the end of it, watching how it played out. And 
the way that they connect those, you know, Jake and his father and continuously do that and reinforce it with tales of genuine loss and struggle was just phenomenal throughout the series. Yeah, and their connections is like very you can definitely see it because he's also like this is over a six year period and um you know, Jake, who is his son, is growing up basically with Avery Badley being like a pseudo father to him too. So yeah. they have really, really, really quality um moments in the show. And obviously Picard or Picard doesn't have that. I mean, we see like a little bit of that, you know, with some what if kind of scenes and then Kirk is just hanging everybody so <laughs> we don't see about his kid and that those issues until like the movies um so there's also he's also a black man so there's unique episodes there we kind of already talked about those already past tense far beyond the stars but i think the thing that i love most about him is that he exists in that gray area um because he's not afraid to do he's not afraid to fight to do what is right even if it doesn't agree with some of his own morals or what is going on with um, Starfleet, mainly because he's as a captain is dealing with a Dominion which no one has ever dealt with before. No one knows this thing. Like the Prime Directive kind of comes full stop a little bit when you're dealing with this type of power. Um, and In the Pale Moonlight is probably my favorite episode of Star Trek ever. And if you haven't seen it, please go watch it because you get to see kind of the true captain of what Cisco does. And I don't think any captain, I don't know, that we've seen so far would do the things that he does to, for the betterment of everybody at the expense of like his own morals and things that he's got to deal with for the rest of his life. Perhaps um, that one captain on a uh, discovery, the one. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah maybe for him. sure. Maybe him. Yeah. Yeah. That guy was mean. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But exactly. But he's definitely, I don't think Picard would do it. I don't think Kirk would be smart enough to do it. <laughs> I think Picard could probably pull it off, but Again, he had a whole trial while hmm. Cisco's punching people, so it's a little bit different. I just think he's the most badass, and we talked about this in our Picard episode, but I think the reason why I like Cisco more is because I think he's a little bit more relatable of what a person who's not like the Sir Patrick Stewart-esque type of like moral good that there uh, is in the world. Like, you know, I would love to be Patrick Stewart and be Picard, but I don't think I would be. I think I'd be much more like Cisco, which is why I'm more, I gravitate more that way. Yeah, I think kind of like listening, listen, listening to you talk about Cisco across many episodes, many drunk conversations, much <laughs> of our friendship. Um, I very much see, and it's kind of how I describe Picard and where I love him is I want to Picard as a leader. I want to have his empathy. I want to have his patience. I want to have his strong moral code. But I don't ever feel like I can be Picard. Because I do have a, you know, I'm, I'm, my temper will come out if pushed, if my morals are pushed. I'm not going to just, I, I'm, I'm probably more of a Cisco than a Picard in that, like, I am not afraid to just go and punch something in the face. Not a person, but like a corporation or a big game <laughs> doing crappy stuff. All that, all of those things. If you follow me on Twitter, you see that. Um, which is very different than Picard, who is, is who is a, a delegate. He is focused on, you know, moving things forward without ruffling too much. And that isn't a bad thing. It's just he's very much an idealized version, yeah. version of what a captain can be. And his dirty moments aren't necessarily as morally gray as you would think. It's about Picard fighting himself more so than fighting this larger moral issue. 
And so when I hear you talk about that, Cisco sounds like a leader that is good and deals with things and is less of an inspiration, more of an aspiration in the fact that he's something tangible that you can emulate. Yeah, for sure. Still love Picard more, yeah. but... Yeah, no, that's completely fair. <laughs> don't worry. Like, don't you, worry. Know. you have seven whole seasons of content to fix your fix your. Opinion. This is fair. This is fair. <laughs> you know, there's nothing fair. wrong with being wrong, Kate. We still love you. Regardless, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, no. Yeah. That, that goatee, that goatee, that shaved head. Oh, come on. All right. Okay. You want to wrap us up with Goldie Because yeah. like, right. we haven't really talked too much about, about Goldie Cot. All right. Well, I, I've got a bit to say here. So I have to take these two characters, which is Garrick and Goldie Cot, and how they are the two opposite sides of response to basically massive crime and massive pain inflicted upon a civilization. Um, you know, Ducat, as some people have gone through the effort of you trying to say that he's a hero character, but I, I definitely don't think so. And I think that comes down to your ability to read through the emotional manipulation and narcissism that is cleverly portrayed by his actor throughout the entire season. It was done by Mark Alimo. I can't ever pronounce his name right. Um, and he is, frankly, self-obsessed with validation and getting validation from what, who, from, from high command, from the Cardassians, from the, the Bajoran people that he's enslaving, from Cisco, where it was a continuously running narrative, and how this craving of validation leads to just the utter downfall of not only everyone around him, but of everything that he touches just turns to rot, right? And it's because, you know, he's constantly driven by, you know, he's played very charismatically. Like, oh, 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 you guys set off the alarms. That's so funny. I'll turn this off for you. Oh, shoot. I'm stuck on the station with you trapped, right? That was like the first season, episode five or something. Um, and, but if you look at the way that he interacts moment to moment, it's always about making other people doubt themselves. Always about like, no, no, don't you just see the way that I saw everything? And like... It's tough, right? Because we want to take into account other people's perspectives. And there are genuinely times where perspectives are at odds with each other. Um, but Dukat is convinced that his way was the only right way. And it is very, very clearly um, a backwards rationalization of, frankly, uh, fascist behavior, right? Oh, we were the superior race. Of course we had to engage this way. We had to make it better for everyone. We had to be the ones. We had better technology. Of course we had to enslave them for their own good, right? He is very much the embodiment of colonization and a lot of these forces that, frankly, my own people inflicted upon most of the world, you know, from my British ancestors traveling to India and South Africa or the Danes to, um, you know, other places and then obviously everything that happened here in the united states um and then you look at garrick right and garrick is kind of the opposite response he's gold early set up as guldicott's enemy and what does he do he stays with the people who he knows he hurt he stays he understands that he's ostracized from this the powerful he under ostracized by his own father what does he do? do he takes humble work listening and observing and carefully relaying things to try to maintain this balance and this peace. He is the only one that also has the insight early on to realize how dangerous the founders are and just what actions should have been taken. And if, frankly, if some of the actions he had advocated for had been taken, which understandably, you know, Worf in what certain episode could not permit, um, the entire, you know, several millions, if not billions of lives could have been saved, right? And that's be and Garrick, in the effort to do so, is willing to throw away everything that is himself 
to try to prevent more harm and more pain to these people, the Bajorans that were hurt. Whereas Dukat would inflict more pain, more suffering, and literally anything to get, no, I am, I, you, I deserve power, I deserve what I had, I deserve, I am entitled, I am entitled. And that is why he is such a phenomenal foil to, um, Cisco, who, who there's this phenomenal episode, I think it's called uh, Waltz, and, I, and basically the two of them are just sitting across from each other, and Dukat's trying to explain what he went through, and Cisco throws his hands up, well, his hand up in the air and says, I wasn't there. I don't know what pressures you were under. I cannot judge you. And Dukat's like, no, judge me. Tell me, do you love me or do you hate me? Do you respect me or do you dislike me? And that need for validation ultimately is what leads to the collapse of his, the character. And the, no, I don't want to spoil anymore, but that leads to the end of the series. Um, and to me, it's such an important takeaway because this is the behavior we're seeing right now in our world at this moment. People who need, people who need validation, craving for it, struggling for it, scrapping at power for it. Um, causing the downfall of other people around them in an attempt to gain that for themselves. And if you can't step back from all of this and say, oh, wow, we are the Cardassians to many people in this world, then you may have missed the entire real message of DS9 and that we have a long way to go to make amends, to, frankly, make the planet a better place. And that is where I will wrap my thoughts on DS9 and why it's such a powerful, relevant show in 2020. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect because yeah. the next thing was going to be like final thoughts on like why DS9 matters, but I think you just killed it. Um, for me, the whole episode for me is um, why I think it matters. And I'm really, really like, I can't express like how much I appreciate your perspective, Alex, because a lot of people haven't watched, like, at least people in like my circles haven't watched Deep Space Nine. And for you to kind of have the kind of passion for it um, more so, I would, I would definitely say more so than I do because you've had a much longer connection to it. Mm. Um, I think it's, I think it's beautiful and I really appreciate your thoughts there um I, at the end i i um yeah i just i can't understate how important this show was to my own moral and intellectual development right to break out of the idea that hey i i grew up in a family where it was kind of like hey we are from near syracuse we were part of the abolition movement. we are part of this we're part of that. we are the good guys and be like no but we we're also part of the arms that happened in this world and owning and accepting that is as equally important with moving things forward as taking steps to be better ourselves and be better than some of our southern relatives, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think that that willingness to own that without saying and that and then by inference, presuming that makes you bad and makes you evil, right? Because accepting it isn't making you evil. Making, accepting it makes you understand just the part that you play and why you need to help. And if there's anything I can do to anyone who listens and willing to watch that show, just open your mind to the fact that, hey, no one's perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm one of those flawed people I'll ever meet, right? But we can get better. We can engage. And we can try to move things just an inch or two forward every generation. And eventually that will lead to the betterment of humanity. And I, if, there, if that isn't yeah. Gene Roddenberry's message to the future, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah, well, I got nothing else to add to that because uh, I'm not I, following that up. Yeah, um, I'm like, that's a I hard don't pass even. For me. Yeah, I, I don't even. I I'm never at a loss for words, but I think that that's that's a it's a it's a beautiful way to wrap this episode and a beautiful way to to put a bow on Deep Space Nine. And I can say I feel like I've been converted and I've been looking for. I was going to start binging Re Zero, but I think I'm just gonna start binging 
Deep Space Nine instead. Um, yeah, I've my eyes have kind of really opened a lot to the work that Deep Space Nine did and why I can understand why people felt that it was different because it was and and not in a bad way. It was doing the important work that I think Roddenberry was kind of restrained from doing in his own time um, Mm -hmm. when he was making those strides. And this is just like the natural progression of the ideals of Star Trek and the natural, it's the how. Um, so I can't wait to jump in. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'm I hope pretty sure me and Alex will be here once once you hit those yeah. big moments. Uh, I can't we'll wait to hear, hear it out. And by the way, yeah, uh, I hope you have a chance to watch Rizio too. Great explosion of toxic yes. masculinity <laughs> eroded through the Japanese lens, right? Which is still got its, its lessons. Um, um, yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean that's all I got. For... I don't have any fun facts because there's really like it's kind of hard to find fun facts about a show that like isn't as loved as the Next Generation, but. My own fun fact is I built a deck before coronavirus made everything shut down, and I named it the Promenade, which is the main area on Deep Space Nine, because I want it to be a place when I can have people over to my house where, you know, we all congregate and have a good time and talk about things in a very respectful way. So that's my fun fact. If you are listening to this episode, I would highly recommend going to watch all 176 episodes. It sounds like a lot, but you really do breeze through it. That serialization helps you kind of get through those episodes quicker, in my opinion. But I did find a pretty decent condensed list of 85 episodes from Ryan Whitman on Mashable that was um, published earlier this year that I think still gets you through a lot of really great stuff in 85 episodes instead of 176. And we'll include that in the show notes. Or um, if you are a patron, it's also in our show notes as well. That's all I got. All right. Well, Kate, it was great. Thank Thanks for inviting well, me here. Yeah, yeah Ruiz. Yeah, no, as well. thank you for being on here. You have brought so much to this episode because I would just be like, and I think having never watched this series, that this is my opinion. <laughs> well, listen, um. <laughs> you know, well, listen, when a critical site says that the villain of a series is the third best reoccurring character in the entire Star Trek, you know, anthology, there's something there and there's something to look yeah. into. Oh, so. yeah. Um, so for everybody listening, why don't you tell them where they can find you, your work, wh- plug all the oh, things you want to plug. Uh, sure. Uh, so right now, um, I've got a new website. Uh, it's called gamedesignskill.com. It's where I train people who are interested in learning about game design and not just how to use this platform or that platform or how to code, but how to really critically think and di- uh, digest a game into a form that then leads you to steps in developing your own game, improving your game processes. Um, I, that course is publicly available. You can sign up. Uh, there's a quick little interview and then um, a kind of an eight-week online course. You can take it at your own pace and learn everything you want to learn about game design and running a small country, um, which is what being a designer on a large MMO basically is. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Oh, and do you have a social media, your mm. social media handle? Sure. Um, you can hit, you can hit me up at, at Zelnath, that's X-E-L-N-A-T-H, uh, which has been my handle pretty much everywhere. And you can learn about all the past and all the drama you ever wanted to by Googling that. So at Zelnath on Twitter, <laughs> hit me up, tell me what you hated about everything I've done. I'm, I'm ready for your salty tears. <laughs> awesome. And as Always, you can find But Why Though on at But Why Though PC on literally every piece of social media in existence. We were smart. We have one handle. Go find it. 
And as Adrian mentioned, you can get access to all of our show notes as well as this episode before it drops on patreon.com slash but why though pc before we head out we want to let you know about our latest giveaway we're giving away five that's right five digital editions of alfred hitchcock's psycho this is to honor the alfred hitchcock classics collection which is now available in 4k ultra hd combo pack with a blu-ray and a digital code from universal pictures home entertainment the collection includes four iconic films from the acclaimed director's illustrious career, including Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds, all in stunning 4K resolution. So, again, head on over to our Twitter, at ButWhyThoughPC, to enter to win one of five digital codes for Psycho. And you can find me on Twitter where I'm ranting about a lot of stuff. I don't even know what I'm currently ranting about, but I'm sure it's about to get spooky, at OhMyMythRandier. Adrian? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at SuperReese93, S-U-P-E-R-R-U-I-Z, 93.